Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. Together with Delta, they're putting 5G into the hands of ground staff so they can better assist on-the-go travelers with real-time information. From the Delta Sky Club to the Jet Bridge, this is elevating customer experience. This is Delta with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Last spring, my friend Stephanie and I had a chance to travel to Rome as part of her research trip. And as usual when I travel, we stayed at an amazing Airbnb. It was the perfect spot to check out the sights and just relax. But what was happening to my house while I was away? Did you know that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? Most people don't think about their space as an Airbnb, but hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey everyone, this week's episode of Talk Easy is supported by Mubi, a curated online cinema streaming a selection of exceptional films from around the globe. Each day, Mubi introduces a new hand-picked gem and you have one month to watch it. Whether it's a timeless classic, a brand new favorite, or a critically acclaimed masterpiece, there's always a perfectly curated selection of films to discover. Try it free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash TalkEasy. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of long-form conversations with the people shaping our culture today. I'm Sam Fragoso. Today on the program, we have the very talented writer, Jay Caspian Kang. Born in South Korea, Kang came to prominence, at least for me, in 2010, when the Morning News published a story about gambling titled, The High is Always the Pain, and the Pain is Always the High. The lengthy essay dove into Kang's personal struggles with gambling addiction, the dependency on poker's inimitable high, the futility of playing cards for hours on end with a group of strangers. It's a piece I've read and reread. It's in part therapeutic for me. I've always enjoyed playing cards. But it's also worth revisiting because Kang puts it all on the line. To continue with the poker theme, he's going all in here. It's elegant prose mixed with piercing, painful memories of a life he's trying to leave. The piece is so good that it garnered the attention of editors around the internet. About a year after the piece's publication, he was hired by Bill Simmons at Grantland to write about sports and pop culture. 
There, he penned vital essays on Ichiro Suzuki, Jeremy Lin, American Idol, boxing, and beyond. His articles didn't fit into a traditional category of sports reporting, though. They were about race and identity, and how he learned to stop worrying and love Kobe Bryant. Concurrent to all this, Kang wrote a novel published by Random House called The Dead Do Not Improve. That was in 2012. He has since claimed to have not written a word of fiction. There's a reason for this, and it's not ability. It's interest. Like all curious writers, Kang wanted to write about anything and everything that intrigued him. So he left Grantland for The New Yorker, where he was the science and technology editor on their Elements blog. But then that didn't last either, especially once the New York Times Magazine offered him the position of writer-at-large. That's where Kang is now, when he's not splitting his time over advice. There, he's a roving correspondent for their HBO show, Vice News. Here's a clip from his report on the Detroit students that filed a lawsuit against Governor Rick Snyder for violating their constitutional rights to literacy. Osborne Evergreen Academy is a high school on the east side of Detroit. 89% of its students aren't reading at grade level, which is typical for a Detroit public school. Jamari A. Hall is a senior at Osborne. He's classmates with one of the unnamed plaintiffs in the lawsuit. What's your favorite subject in school? Math. And you took pre-calculus last year, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what math class are you in right now? <laughs> pre-calculus again. Why, why did that happen? Like, why are you taking the class over again? Really, I don't think it's enough, uh, even another teacher probably available to teach the next math class. And even if it is, it's probably not even no books for that math class. Kang and I sat down during that trip in New York I've mentioned before. We were outside on Vice's back patio, which exists in some kind of strange alternate universe with a perfect view of the city from Brooklyn. The conversation hit on everything from his accomplished journalism career to his problems with gambling to his general disinterest in most of pop culture these days. He was one of the first vocal critics of Hamilton. For anyone who spends the majority of their days writing and reading, or rather, thinking about writing or reading, I imagine this sprawling conversation may be of interest. It certainly was to me. So, finally, here is Jay Caspian King. So, where are we? We're on the deck of vice. This feels like almost like a Google type <laughs> idea. Yeah. Like let's put a let's put a deck in the back well, in the backyard. And it's yeah. really nice. It would have been better for them to build, at least in my opinion, put a roof on this thing and build some more office space because it's really crowded in there. Yeah. yeah. Um so why don't we start with uh I was mentioning this a little bit, but I've listened to your episode on the long form podcast a lot, like maybe three times. Oh no, that's weird. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. There's a reason for it. I promise it's not that strange. There's something, um, both like inspiring and really depressing about that episode (laughs) and about what I think you're, I don't know. I want to get to the bottom of this, but like your outlook on all of this, this being media or whatever. And the term I've thought about, and you, I think you may know what I'm about to say, but like you called everyone a content farmer? Oh, yeah, I still think that. I mean, I don't know if I said everyone is a content farmer, but I think that the vast majority of people 
the media are, you know, making content at a pace that uh, is probably pretty unsustainable for them and leaves them generally unsatisfied. Now, I don't know if that was true of newspaper people or magazine writers or artists or graphic designers or filmmakers 25 years ago, but, you know, I think that just the pace of things has made it so that, uh, and the way that things are sort of scored in terms of whether it's successful or not, that everyone has it in the back of their head that, you know, something that's successful is something that's going to be uh, obviously popular online, and, you know, that fits in, I think, with the incentive structure of media companies that are, you know, increasingly becoming content farms. I don't know if that means that the quality of writing and reporting is down. I don't know, if, but I do think that it leads to a greater dissatisfaction amongst the people who are doing it. Hmm. Do you know anyone who's happy doing this? Yeah, there's a guy downstairs who, <laughs> who works on the TV show Vice News Tonight who's very happy. Um, <laughs> and there are actually a lot of people, I think, on the show who are happy. I think that's sort of the interesting transition I think between working on online writing and working on television is that I think in TV right now there's still the hope that, you know, big things are happening, that you have big audiences and that uh, television can be transformative. Mm. Um, I, so in, people have to go to TV to find refuge? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know. I don't want to speak for everybody here, but like I guess I've worked at a lot of companies over the past few years, and yeah. I would say that the people that I work with now are generally the happiest, uh, and that perhaps all this is just sort of a constant angst that is at the heart of every journalist and has been since like the 1800s or something like that. But I think that the way that it's expressed now is probably through people's dissatisfaction with having to write so much um, and produce so much for so little money. Hmm. Did you think that was going to be part of the equation? Like back, you used to be a school teacher. Um, no, because I was very delusional as a when I was in my early twenties and in college. Like I felt like I was, I had it in my head that I mean, I wanted to be a novelist, and I had it in my head that all I really needed was to publish the novel. It didn't matter how much money I made or how much. Uh, how many people read it that as long as there was like an entry in the Library of Congress with my name on it that I would feel the endless satisfaction of having accomplished something. And there is. Yeah, there definitely is. But I think back then in my early 20s, late <laughs> Do you feel better? college that I was uh, much more along like a beatnik type of path or something. If that, I don't know if that term still applies or what it means now, but... Uh, I'm not sure either, but I, yeah. I think I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it was okay for me to imagine myself as constantly traveling the world and uh, sort of living a life of poverty and spiritual <laughs> meaning, which certainly hasn't worked out so far. It hasn't worked out. Well, no, I mean, you know, I mean, I think that I'm at this point pretty much like an establishing media person, you know, so, uh, and I 
look online to buy couches and stuff like that. So like, I, I don't think that the beatnik writer part of my life really turned out. <laughs> Does that sadden you? Uh, it did yesterday. So it comes and goes. What happened yesterday? Uh, I don't remember what happened yesterday, but it very, every once in a while, I just think, you know, it would be, I think it's whenever I read something very good or I see a very good documentary or I hear a piece of music that I admire quite a bit. I wonder how much mental space it must have taken and how much sacrifice of time and sort of emotional energy it must have taken for the person to produce it. Mm. And that, uh, I rarely find myself producing things that take that amount of, uh, output, uh, maybe like a couple articles a year. I'm working on one right now that I think will sort of, you know, be the totality of, of what I could do. But, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's an interesting comparison because, uh, because I think that when you're working for company and you're doing a couple different things you're writing articles that it's harder to sort of like put everything aside and like say like all right this is like the spiritual uh evocation of what i care about and who i am Uh, maybe that's a good thing i don't know maybe those types of things are very vain and juvenile impulses juvenile impulses but like isn't that what is like kind of driving everyone a little bit um I don't know, cause I, I maybe not, cause like when I I think that when you meet like people who I think are are dedicated reporters that they have a real uh, commitment to public knowledge and um, the public interest, and so some people that you meet or have met, I guess whether at the Times or the New Yorker or even places that are less prestigious, like they have committed their lives to like trying to find out information to share to the public. I don't think that's a juvenile impulse, you know, and I think that uh but I do think that like sort of writing a magazine article or writing a novel or writing a song or something like that, that you feel like encapsulate all of your like who you are, like some sort of expression of self. Mm. Sometimes that now, I guess, seems to me a little bit juvenile, but I still like appro- I appreciate when people do it. I just feel like at this point, it's difficult for me to like summon that energy. Isn't that the poker article? Yeah, that was one. Uh, that one I wrote when I was like twenty six, yeah. I think. Do you and still think that's the best thing you've written? Um. I don't know, probably, at least in terms of being like a, like what we were talking about, that was probably the closest. Um, I, that took a lot of, well, I don't know if it took emotional energy, but it probably took me like six months from start to finish. Uh, and obviously since it's a personal essay, it wasn't like I was waiting around for sources or reporting to come right. through like the article i'm working on now has taken me a year but it's mostly because like i had to wait for things to actually happen and in the interim i'm not really working on it but uh yeah that one that one took that, that took a lot out of me and i feel like that's a sort of experience that that i'm not like having as much anymore mm, that piece takes a lot of like anyone who reads it i think like it's really and i mentioned this before you know like as someone who does play how did you get through that how did you like 
Oh, like, like gambling? I, I mean, like, genuinely, like, at that age, you're, what, you're 25? 20, yeah, 25, 26, and 27. Like, how do you, in your head, I, I guess I'm interested in, like, you go through the car, you look for change. I think you find enough to play a hand. Yeah. You don't win. And then, oh. and then you go back to the car, and you're, like, driving home. Like, what's on your mind? Like, what do you, how do you even work through that? Uh... Well, the sort of folly and the sort of power of gambling is that you generally have some sense that it's all going to swing back your way. Mm. And even when I knew that it wasn't going to, there were still periods where I would just be like, oh, well, he's going to be fine, you know? Um, And I guess... Since money, and I guess this is one of the weird sort of paradoxes of a lot of gamblers, is that like money doesn't really matter, you know, mm. like, uh, and money didn't matter to me at all back then. And so, then what were you playing being for? Broke was, uh, I think I addressed it a bit in the article, you know, I think it was just sort of like a thrill. Right. Uh, I didn't really have, I didn't feel like, I, I think I was just probably working through something where it was, better for me to sort of chase like very moderate thrills sitting around gambling halls in Southern California and New York than it was to sort of address something else. Um, and What were you not addressing? I don't really know. I mean, and that's something that the sort of, that essay doesn't go into very much. And I think I still don't know. I mean, I think that People who suppress some sort of emotional thing, maybe they don't figure out until much later. So I, I mean, don't know it's if a, I figured it out. It is yet. a high. Like I mean, yeah. and, and it, it's like any other drug. I mean, it's yeah potent and addictive and yeah, it's exciting to win. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that really addresses why I would play so much. You know, um, were you because, lonely back then? Not really. I mean, I think I was. I mean, oh, not really, I don't think. I mean, I don't know what it is. I, I mean, I, and that's one of the mysteries, I think, of gambling addiction or any addiction, right? That, like, drawing a psychological straight line from, like, one traumatic event in your life or from some sort of massive emotional need to the addiction is usually, like, pretty, it's like a fallacy, you mm-hmm. know? So, um, and so what I mean by, like, the fact, I don't know what it really was going on where I felt the need to, play poker 40, 60, 80 hours a week. Um, I think that it was more just that I was doing it and that it was something to do and that it was exciting when I won and it was exciting when I lost. And that at the age of 25, if you're not very social, and I'm not particularly social, you don't go out a lot. If you're not sort of interested in having a group of friends and it's not that I wasn't, I just didn't. Um, and did you of, try it? No, but I've never, really, you know, I, I have friends. It's, I generally have a couple of friends I hang out with and it's just what I'm comfortable with. But, uh, you know, I think that you have to find some sort of exterior outlet, I guess huh. for youthful energy. And I was writing my novel. I was teaching at a school, but for some reason, every other waking hour, like I was, playing cards and so 
it's interesting because when I turned like 27 or something like that or 28, then I took all, I started surfing every day. And I think it was the same thing, you know? I don't think there's any difference between surfing every day and playing cards every day for me, except that one is much healthier. Have you had a, like a sort of obsessive personality in the past? Like as a kid, were you? Uh, not as a kid. Huh. That's how I felt. Yeah. I felt like every little thing, right. it would be like six month intervals of like, I guess I'm doing this now. Yeah. And, the- and that's all I would do. I would say that if it started, it started when I was in a freshman in high school and I got really into our high school's debate team. Ah. And uh, I spent almost all my high school life preparing for our debate tournaments. Um, That's kind of shocking to me. Why? Because you're so like um, very relaxed, soft-spoken, um well, debate can be done at different volumes. Yeah, certainly. But, but I, maybe not. It's not even about like it's not like octave level. It's it's more temperament to use a Trump oh. word. Like <laughs> I this thing, I met like when I first met you, I immediately got the sense that you were like a really nice, good guy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you might want to table that conclusion. Well, we'll but. see by the end of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. but, but like. To see you, I, it's hard to imagine you up there, like being like, "Well, actually, your argument is this, 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 this." And that's yeah, wrong, and I mean, true. the type of debate I was doing was much more research based, okay, um, and preparation based. But yeah, you did have to do a lot of yelling, and it was incentivized to act like an asshole. Yeah, um, but and you were good at that. Uh, I was okay. You know, I was good for the state of North Carolina where I was going to high school. Like, I think I was very good for North Carolina, but. Uh, when I would compete against kids who went to high schools in like Lexington, Massachusetts, or the North suburbs of Chicago, or uh, like St. Mark's in Dallas, or any of the big national schools, like I would lose because uh, you know those kids had a lot more resources mm. for debate than I did, and maybe they're just better. But you know, was your family around to help? With my debate career? Well, just high school. Were they were they supportive of, of the things you were doing? Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, my parents <laughs> are so, my parents are Asian immigrants or Korean immigrants. So like that answer was the way you answered. <laughs> you're like, yeah, I don't know. yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, were, they were supportive of debate. I was a really bad student in high school, and a lot of it was because of debate. And so I don't think they were necessarily thrilled with that. And I think in retrospect, they were probably right. You know, like I wasn't going to like they do give out debate scholarships to places like Dartmouth or Emory or Northwestern. And because I was in North Carolina and because I wasn't like nationally good, I was never going to get a scholarship to those places. And so it would have probably made more sense for me to uh, been a better student. But I don't think back then I had the capacity to be a better student because like school was so uninteresting to me. And because I, you know, I frankly like just wasn't very good at it. Even during the stretches where I would try uh, in science or math classes, like I just didn't have the aptitude for it. And because uh, our school was so hyper tracked, I was always in the upper level classes. Oh, and I just wasn't like I just wasn't smart enough to be in those classes, I guess. So I'd get like C's in them. <laughs> it was so uninteresting that you decided, you know, I should be a teacher. Yeah. Well, that was a, that's like a, I, let's see, why did I become a teacher? 
Well, part of it was that I had no skills coming out of an MFA program. And, but the last thing I wanted to do was hang around New York and try and sort of participate in a literary scene as a hanger on. You hated that idea. Yeah, that thought was so repulsive to me that I decided to. <laughs> what was repulsive? Um, I don't know. I was, you know, now that I think about it, it was probably unfair because I was, but like you have to understand, I was like 24 years old and I had just finished graduate school with a bunch of people who were much older than me. Um, and the, that was I, at NYU or? Is that Columbia? Columbia. And, uh, and again, I was like sort of had a very sort of, uh, I guess, hippie-ish, beatnik vision of life. And I didn't want to... And the thing that always upset me was going to, like, book readings or going to uh, MFA readings or any sort of reading. Readings or or anything where there was this sort of what I thought was a very decadent literary scene that was very out of touch with uh, what literature could be and what fiction could be and was sort of, in my mind, very cloistered and self-serving and uh, sort of rewarded people who sort of fit into that economy. And you didn't fit into it? No, I probably did. And I think that's one of the realizations that I've had now, um, which is, you know, not a comfortable thing to admit, but, you know, I probably fit into that economy much better than at the time I thought I did. Because at the time I thought that, you know, all these people are just sort of these bloated bourgeois like you know dilettantes but i was like a bloated bourgeois dilettante too you know and i didn't you think didn't, about it you, you wanted to reject that though <laughs> i don't think i realized it i just wanted to like you know i started gambling i was doing well i was making money and i was just like <laughs> i was like fuck this like i'm not going to <laughs> i'm not going to book, I lo- book signings I, I love that that was like hey, you guys do your book signing i'm just, I'm just gonna go gamble <laughs> yeah with i'm gonna go be a six-year-old uh, man like yeah i'm gonna make a <laughs> I would just be rich off poker, which, you know, was my... In the beginning, you thought that. Yeah, I was doing pretty well, you know? Like, I... Man, I mean, I was really broke during graduate school. And the first, like, 20... I don't know how many it is. I don't want to misspeak here. But in my memory, like, the first few dozen times I played, I probably won, you know? Like, I don't remember losing. Uh, and generally in gambling, you remember losing, you know, you don't really remember winning. So, but I, I find that your, your piece actually really deterred me. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. Some it's, uh, once you go to a certain level, it's very hard to come back down. Yeah. And it's been interesting. It's not really related to the money because like. I've had so many media jobs over the past five years, and so my salary fluctuates quite a bit. And I find that the years I make less money than the year before, I don't really notice, and it doesn't really bother me. Mm-hmm. But when I but coming down from a limit uh, from playing like two five to one three is like impossible, <laughs> you know? and it's just like it doesn't matter. I think it's so. I do think that the two <laughs> are different. Telling, it's a telling detail. It's just you? very much not about the money. Yeah. It's, very just about like what the how much the money can actually sort of Hmm. charge you emotionally after the election on the finale of last week tonight john oliver um spoke very eloquently passionately about the need to support press it seems like now more than ever it feels imperative 
that we support the things we love. That includes people, journalism, art, and I think organizations like MUBI, whose primary interest is expanding the cinematic horizons of those curious to try something new and interesting. Films that will affect your worldview and challenge it. Some of those titles include Badin Badin, which I mentioned last week and was in theaters last week, but can now be streamed on MUBI, and the Anna Trilogy, which are the two short films that preceded it. If you're looking for something that's less, maybe intellectually challenging, but no less brilliant, check out the Jackie Chan double bill they have going on with Project A and Project A2. It's comic martial arts at its finest. Wild action, silly comedy, perfect timing, Jackie Chan. If you've somehow lived your life without watching Jackie Chan, um, one, that's incredible, and two, I guess I'm happy to be the person to maybe nudge you in the direction of doing that. Um, Jackie Chan's like watching Buster Keaton in a way. Anyway, if you have some time this week, you can check all of this out and more by heading over to movie.com slash talkeasy for your free 30-day trial. Just signing up and exploring this great platform helps out both Mubi and this podcast. Now, back to Jay. Let's talk about the media gigs. Let's yeah. start with, uh, so it begins after you do that, it was for the Dallas... Oh uh, no no! It was for some. It was for a website called the Morning News. The Morning News, yeah. And uh, let's see. I mean, but I got so, paid a very small amount of money for it. But how quickly does Grantland? Ha- that's the first big place you land, right? I mean, you had been writing on the internet certainly, but you didn't had like a staff job. Well, no. I mean, so um, let's see here. In October of two thousand and ten. I finished my novel and I right. published that. No, it was 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, I finished my novel and I published that essay. Um, and then that's kind of a good. That's a good one too. Yeah, but I hadn't sold my novel. Right. And I published that essay. And the reason why I was writing more nonfiction was because I had finished my novel and that, and I was just waiting for my agent to either sell it or not sell it. Um, and he or she sold it. He sold, yeah. He. So then I went to was Southeast it, was it, Asia was it good for good money bit. for the book. Yeah, I did pretty well. Like uh, I went to Southeast Asia for three months with my now wife. Mm. And you guys had met while you were teaching, or what, what? We had met like a couple of months before, so it was a little bit of an insane trip. Mm. Um, and then I had a uh, series of really good luck. I think it all happened in three days. I think I've told this story before, so if it, yeah, you, if you, it you doesn't have. yeah, if it doesn't but, really But go ahead. It might not completely line up factually with what I said before, but <laughs> if it does I hope it's only by a factor of a couple of days. It's okay. Um over the course of some days I'll I'll be very time seen about it. Over the course of some number <laughs> of days. Um I got a you know I got an assignment from the New York Times Magazine to write about uh, young poker players and I sold the novel and then when I got back like I got the Grantland job offer and it's all over the course of a couple of weeks so. so that's age 26 27. no I was 29 oh 29 okay. yeah and uh, were you happy uh, that's an interesting question I don't I was really happy that I would 
Huh. Yeah, I think I was pretty happy for about, and then I, you know, I think that because it, my time between the age of 22 when I graduated from college until I was 29 was very like professionally frustrating. I couldn't sell short stories, not even sell. I couldn't publish, play short stories in journals. I couldn't really publish anything with any publisher and. When I started writing for the internet, I think that I realized that, uh, you know, the style with which I write was probably better for the internet. And, but I also what's, just, what's te- that style? I think it's a little more voicey and perhaps a little bit more neurotic than, um, than magazines. So mm-hmm. it was, I don't know, and and I really enjoyed it. Like I, I, I still think back at the time when I like sort of pu- started publishing things like the gambling essay or fun things that I was writing about music, and I think that I probably enjoyed the feedback and reading comments You're and about like the, the diva piece. Yeah, 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 or even anything else during that period of time. Like I covered American Idol for the All and stuff like yeah. that, and like. I was is that, is that Pete Kang right there? I think so. <laughs> or at least it was the most I enjoyed. You know, my, I don't buy that for one fucking. No, second. it was the most I enjoyed my career. You know, like yeah. it was the, the and uh, it was the most sort of I felt like I was really starting to uh, have some traction. And mm-hmm. I think that if you talk to anybody about their career, they'll tell you that the first days were the you know like those early days were probably among the best. You know, so. Um, yeah, no, it was, I was. I think I was very happy and excited. Uh, so you get this, this. So does Simmons call you? Uh, he emailed me. Okay. And and what does it say? Um, he just said, you know, I like been paying attention to your stuff and was wondering if you want to talk to us, uh, starting this new thing. Um, and. <laughs> I like it was like do you want to meet up at some point I remember and I like was like alright I'll meet you tomorrow and then I like, was living in San Francisco I like got in a car and drove down to LA to <laughs> meet him and turn around and drove back uh, that, I guess that's the sort of energy that was exciting back then you what know? was so what did you guys talk about in that first meeting uh, I don't know I probably I don't even remember honestly I, I don't want to really sort of air bill out in that sort of way like uh, I don't I haven't really um but I think it was mostly him just telling me about the project and asking, you know, and saying that he was excited about it. And I was obviously very excited to work with him. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't think that excitement at Grantland really waned very much for mm-hmm. the first, like, couple of years that I was there. In those first two years, did you all think, like, yeah, this is going to be good. This is going to, this is going to work out. Well, I mean, any launch is terrible. So like, uh, no, obviously there are points where we were like, this is a disaster. Uh, <laughs> any launch is terrible. Okay. Yeah. Every launch. I mean, I, I think that's pretty, launching anything is hard and things go wrong and people get really stressed out and burned out. And, uh, and it's just part of launching anything. Um, it's, you just should build it into the, you know, you should build into like basically your budget of whatever that like people are going to burn out, people are going to want to quit, people are going to leave. Um, but I think that the one thing that we had there was this sort of abiding belief that we 
could build something good and that we had been given the resources to build something good mm. and that if we didn't build something good that it was most likely our fault mm. you know um you were getting paid pretty well right uh by media standards probably yeah i don't know not that well huh. i mean i was getting paid well comparative to what i had made before which was like forty thousand dollars a year as like a high school teacher yeah. i was gonna get paid more that than that but yeah i don't i mean i i always i guess there are levels to it you know like i, I think even like comparative to other people at espn probably not that well but for me it was great you know i had never made that much money in my life so um so you moved down to la with your then girlfriend yeah you had this job. Seems good. Yeah, it was. I enjoyed it. Uh, it was exciting. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I had never edited before, and I was editing. Um, but you know, I found. I tried to find a niche. My I guess my niche was quickly like trying to find writers who excited me and sort of signing them up. Um, and you so, think you did a good job of that? Uh, I think so. I mean, none of these people were undiscovered before, but I think that the mix of people that me and Lane Brown and Bill, Dan Fearman, uh, brought together was pretty good, you mm-hmm. know, and it, maybe it took a while for them to really take off and figure out how to work with, uh, sort of figure out for us how to space them so it works together so it's a cohesive website. Maybe we never figured that out, but like, I think that the mix of voices on that site, and the mix of analysis and like angles at going after like sort of sports and pop culture, mm. I think that we found the right people to do that. And I think that uh, I mean, it was a great site. Yeah, I think the site was just like built out the strength of the writers. And I think that the editor's job, at least at the beginning, I won't speak for when I after I left because I don't know. Mm. But like when I was there, I just always felt like our job was to sort of get out of their way. You know, and to just give them the support that they needed so that they always felt safe, like taking risks. And, um, I don't know. I guess that's sort of the nice thing about a website like that is that, like, we had a lot of pieces that were bad, <laughs> but they were never boringly bad. They're always, sure. like, atrociously bad. <laughs> and, um, I don't know. I think that it's hard to find that type of environment now, which is why I think that if you talk to people who, used to write for Grantland or work for Grantland, like the one thing I think what they probably miss the most is that sort of safety that they felt there. Mm-hmm. But then you left. Yeah. I, I didn't want to write about sports anymore. Uh, Did it reach its like interest or like intrigue level to you or like, was it a usage thing or? No, no. Um, I had always felt like I had no idea how to be a reporter because I had no reporting background. But I had published in some places that, I don't know, like the Times Magazine or wherever, that seemed to demand a lot of reporting Mm -hmm. acumen. And you understand why people listening, hearing that comment, they would think, well, how could he say he didn't know how to report if the Times Magazine, one of the premier sort of editorial long-form reported no, I didn't. I had never the first, <laughs> the first reporting trip I ever went on, the first piece I ever reported in my life was a New York Times magazine piece, which is, yeah, yeah which I think is very. I, I don't know. I, I can't imagine that it's a very uh, endearing thing to say, but it was true. Yeah. And so I just didn't know what I was doing. 
And I had never been to journalism school. I grew up like uh, only interested in fiction. And so uh, I was like, well, you know, I have this. I can learn how to report on the job, but I don't want to only know how to report about sports. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So like in sports, the, I was doing a lot of profiles for Grantland and they really taught me how to like sort of sit with somebody and get something good out of them. But I didn't know how to do like a crime story. I didn't know how to do like a story about social justice or like the criminal justice system and all the sorts of things that I had grown to admire um, from writers that, you know, that I had started reading, like journalists. When I got to Grantland, I had no idea who any of these people were. Like, you know, I didn't know what the, like, I guess, like, people in the office would talk about, like, the ASME Awards. I didn't know what an ASME Award was, you know? What is that? It's like the American, it's like the American Society of Magazine Editors Award. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had no idea. I was just like, it's a thing. I didn't realize that, you know? (laughs) Like, uh, and I don't think I could have named two people, two writers at the New Yorker who weren't, like, Malcolm Gladwell or, David Sedaris or something like that but you know as you yeah I really did start to really love reporting and journalism and like the people that I began admiring like I would I realized that the gap between us maybe wasn't on the sentence level but it was on the reporting end and so uh, I wanted to sort of leave and try and figure it out so that's why I left yeah. so who who came calling uh, <laughs> uh I don't know. I just worked a lot of freelance stuff. And then I took a job at the New Yorker right. uh, at the website. That was re- I was like, I was surprised with that. Not that you Why were. Why are you surprised? You just said it. You just said you knew two writers at the New Yorker. Like, so in my, like, it's interesting. Like, I think most people who work, who go to work at the New Yorker are like huge. Well, at that know. point, I mean, that I went to work there, I knew a lot more than right. two. But uh, I don't know. I, did it not surprise you when they offered the job? No, because I was qualified for the job at that point. You know, I had started a very successful, or like been one of the founding editors of like a pretty successful website. Yeah. And the job that they had me doing was like, you know, uh, I appreciated it and I thought it was a good job, but it, I, it wasn't something I wasn't on, unqual- I wasn't qualified for, yeah. you know? So, uh, I, I wasn't necessarily surprised that I got the job, but I wasn't implying that by the way. Oh no, 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 no. I wasn't. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not responding that way as a, I was just thinking like, was I surprised that I got the job? I don't, I don't think I was necessarily surprised, but it was, it was a lot for me to process going to work there, you know, because it was to me in my mind, like sort of the ultimate institution. And I really felt like I was going to work there for the rest of my life if I was like lucky enough to keep working there. And so when you, when uh, I you, felt very humbled. You to, like, felt be that there. way when you got the job that you were like after the first month of being in the office. You thought, "Yeah, I could be here." Yeah, the rest of my career. I really loved it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I ha- was frustrated uh, in the same ways that anyone is frustrated at any job, but you know, like I did, I, I bought into the magazine. I bought into the idea that there needed to be some, and I feel the same way about the times. I still feel this way about the New Yorker that like there needs to be a standard, you know, for journalism and there needs to be a standard for storytelling. Um, and that that thing should be big, you know, like it shouldn't be a small journal. That's just somehow better than everything else. It needs to be like a big market thing. Mm. And I, I still feel humbled sort of by the, 
you know, the fact that I have bylines at the Times and I felt humbled working at the New Yorker. Uh, and, you know, it was a new feeling for me, because not because I felt like I had sort of had lived my life and sort of like, you know, as like a like completely through the id and, you know, like my own sort of belief in myself. But I think that uh, when you work on a website like Grantland, there's a lot of, a lot of it is adversarial. You know, you, mm. you, we were always like, all right, are we better than Sports Illustrated? Are we better than uh, ESPN.com? Are we better than these other sports websites? You know, and that was our gauge. But once I got to the New Yorker, like it was just like, well, you know, like I, can't work anywhere better than this right all i can do is sort of get a better job at this place but so a lot of that dissipated so what happened um i don't know i just got another job and at the times magazine and, that, that uh, you thought was more interesting than the new yorker job uh yeah because i was gonna go back to writing you oh. know, and i was editing at the new yorker but it's like uh, it sounds like you loved it that's not so what changed Nothing changed. Uh, I just wanted to write more. And the pace of um, working online on the New Yorker's website was not allowing me to write very much. Mm. And yeah, you I, only write like a couple like a Yeah, piece I didn't write weeks, very right? much, yes. But then I sort of realized that what I wanted to do was write again. And so the offer from the Times pretty attractive, so I changed mm. left. Was fiction also part of this? That you wanted to, like, write? No, I haven't written a word of fiction since I finished my novel six years ago. And is that not... <laughs> is that, you don't want it? Uh, let's see. I've stopped reading fiction. I've read a little bit of John Leatham's new book because it's about gambling. And I realized it was the first novel I had picked up in, like, a, over a year. Well, what's going on? Um, and... I don't really watch scripted TV or movies anymore. I just watch documentaries and read uh, the news. And I don't, I think that's like a, I actually think as a, it's almost like a age progression thing. Like I know a lot of guys in their forties who are the same way. And I think I just like, I just remember when I was like in high school, my high school girlfriend was upset one day and it was because she had just had a conversation with her father and my high school girlfriend was a big fan of fiction. And, um, he, she asked her father, like, why don't you read novels? You're always just reading like books about war history and stuff. And he was like, well, you know, I'm not interested in sort of like taking in other people's lies, you know, which she thought was an, and I also at the time thought was an immensely callous sort of Philistine t thing to say. Taking in other people's lives. Lies. Lies. Oh, lies. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> I've thought about that comment quite a bit over the past 10 years because I I think I'm starting to get that way, you know? And I still admire fiction writers. I still admire people who make narrative film. Um, but I, I'm just not interested in it anymore. <laughs> like, I don't want to write fiction anymore. Uh, I don't want to... And I don't... I Like, it takes a hell of a movie for me to get to the theater, like, even watch it on Netflix or something like that. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I actually don't know anyone like well, I, maybe i do not not, really? not people as uh, uh outspoken or sort of i don't know i, I guess it. i'm not trying to be i mean I, i'm not saying that this is like a good thing or a bad thing it's just that in fact I pr it's probably a bad thing because you know it's a very sort of limited vision on the world 
but I don't, I have a hard time, like, Netflix shows or whatever, like, I just, I can't, I don't do it really anymore. It's not interesting. Uh, if I start watching it, I'll generally, like, see it through, but it's, like, one a year now. That's so interesting, because I feel like if I'm not taking in new films or music or fiction, like, I'm not, I don't feel, I don't get inspired, I guess. I don't know if that's, if that makes sense, but. Yeah. So, you, how did you figure your way around that? Or was that, was that never you? Um, well, let's see. I also feel like it's just, like, I'm sad for you. <laughs> Why? Because there's so much. There's so much good stuff. There's, I don't agree with that. There's so I much. I think that most. You haven't seen any of it. What are you talking about? No, I like, I don't think, I've seen enough of it where I don't feel like the, <sighs> I feel like the things that people get excited about. In media, or the things that are critically acclaimed, I generally will not like. And How so I think that was 36. Okay. And that was part of the... I think that's part of it. Like, I didn't... Uh, generally, I will watch, like, half an episode or something like that. And I don't know. I just think that the assigning what is good and what's bad right now, especially in terms of, like, sort of prestige television series, is so caught up in sort of either personal agenda of the critic or friends that they might have had because everybody is in the same small world, you know, like it's generally sort of like an Ivy League set or <coughs> based on some vague sort of ultimately banal political point, you know, that is being tried to make that, uh, that can sort of signal that the reviewer or the people who are talking about on Twitter are enlightened. You know, mm. and that was the name of the Lord Nerd Show Enlightened, but that they are like enlightened and that they are woke in a way, right? So, like, uh, right now it seems like I think if you put like a Asian man in a leading role of any television show, that the same set of people would say it was a good show, regardless of whether it was good or not. Oh. And I agree, or, you know, and th- that goes all across the board for any sort of like political opinion du jour amongst like sort of a bourgeois, like leftist. Uh, like this is my old self creeping back in here, but I don't, I don't know. I guess I just watch these shows and I don't see what I, I just don't see it. Like I don't think these are good shows, and I think that sort of uh, that there's now, and I'm I'm certainly not the only person who thinks this, or that this is not an original idea. That I admit, but like I think that there is an economy of sort of like congratulating things that aren't great for the purpose of being enthusiastic about it or to show other people that like you are not you know like a bigot or whatever like i just and i i've i I don't know i guess i just have turned off from that like i don't think that uh a lot of these shows are particularly good um and so you don't believe when someone is genuinely praising something no that's way too far that's like way too far to take it i believe like there are critics who i think are who I trust, who I think are good, you know, and there, and then there are a whole bunch of critics or media people or like people who sort of tweet about these things where I just don't, where I just feel like it's a consensus that's built and you're just signaling that you agree with the consensus and that mm. the consensus is generally not fed by like whether or not the thing that's created is like good art or like whether it's a good story or whether it's well done or whether or not it's sort of emotionally resonant, but it's it, the the consensus is built on whether or not this thing is the ideal vessel for somebody to sort of communicate their and project their sort of very progressive 
political beliefs. And I, I think that, uh, I, I don't, I think the thing is, I think everybody who even participates in this thing, in this type of, uh, economy also believes that, you know? And that's why everybody says, oh, I'm so sick of Twitter. I don't want to do this anymore. Like, Twitter's the worst. Well, you know, like, it's because everybody, everybody thinks this. Like, everybody feels like it's some sort of like, false economy of, like, praise. And even the people who participate in feel that way. So what's the alternative? I, I, so I'm, I'm in agreement. Fine. We're in lockstep, but yeah. like, I'm someone who like, likes to see, like, open that door for me. Like, <laughs> well, I don't know what that means. Like, sh- if this is where we are, like, sh- open the door and show me then, like, where are we going next? Oh, well, I mean, look, that's not up to me because I'm not a critic and I'm not, uh, no, but you're talking about something way larger than criticism. It seems. No, I'm actually not though. I'm talking really specifically about, like, about television criticism and in some ways music criticism Mm. you know and i have written some tv and music pieces but i don't consider myself a consumer of it i don't really consider myself a critic you know consider yourself a consumer of what i like music or television Mm. so Um, like when you're writing about to pimp a butterfly what are you what are you consuming well to Pimp a Butterfly is different because I do know I I did feel like I know quite a bit about rap music because I grew up listening to it and I pay attention to it. You okay. Know? Um, but yeah, that was an album where I felt as I I mean I don't know as I wrote in the piece you know I uh I thought it was it was sort of it really sort of sagged under its own self-imposed expectations and I understand why it as an expression intellectually was interesting and maybe that was the whole point but i thought that as like a piece of music that it wasn't as good as his first album Mm. but um you know i and i still feel that way uh i can just i'm completely disagreeing with you (laughs) it was a really it was a really unpopular opinion to have i read the piece and i was interested in it yeah but uh I don't think I was, I still don't think I was wrong, you know? I don't hear people driving down the street listening to any song from that album except All Right, which I think has taken on its own amazing and sort of emotionally resonant and important uh, places like a song that I've heard at every protest I've been to over the past two years, or the past year and a half, I guess, since the album came out, but... uh, but the album itself, I don't know. Like, I, and um, it sounds like you're doing the same thing that you did when you were 24, and like wanting, like you didn't want to be part of this literary scene. Like, there's, a, there's, and in, in what you're saying, there seems to be a distancing act that you're doing. And I'm not. I hope that doesn't come off as harsh. I think that's okay. Yeah, but I think that everybody in media does it, you know, mm. because I think that uh, that nobody who is that everybody who is working at I just say this everyone in media is very ambitious um, and they nobody came in with the idea like oh I'm gonna like write get stuck at this place you know and I think that there's just when you have a bunch of ambitious people the way that ambitious people motivate themselves is to try and distance themselves from their colleagues mm. you know uh, to sort of build in spite or build in reason to be competitive. Um, 
and that you have to sort of look at other people and be like, I'm not going to be that because it's the only thing that will sort of motivate you to keep going because, like, none of us make money, you know, or a lot of money. And uh, <laughs> none of us are ever going to be really that famous. And so I think that's probably part of it. I think it's, like, internal competition or something like that. Like that. Do you, do you want to be famous? No, no, not at all. I, I am uncomfortable enough working on like a television show yeah, where like show my now. face is on television. It's uh, you know, I can't think of anything worse than sort of walking down this, not being able to walk down the street in anonymity. Um, but I, you know, I will say that. Uh, I think part of the reason why I've had so many jobs is because I get bored very quickly mm-hmm. and, like a, and that I'm looking for something that sort of interests me completely in the same way that surfing or gambling used to interest me and that uh, but weren't those even weren't those temporary surfing no I mean those lasted years <laughs> way longer than any job I've had in media <laughs> you know um, but I so documentary filmmaking was something that I that I really started becoming interested in a couple a couple years ago. Yeah. And um you know, I think that sort of working on a new show and working with really talented filmmakers and cameramen and producers has been, you know, it's like an amazing education. So like I think that uh working on this show has been pretty cool in that way mm. like in terms of sort of seeing myself on hbo now or whatever it's still very very weird so right now you're satisfied uh yeah i don't know like who's satisfied in media <laughs> but i'm fine like well, it would it, maybe no one's satisfied but it i like the way you're putting the, it seems like you're actively searching to be satisfied uh, maybe more than most people hmm I really, you know, during the period of time where I, I was very, I was not good at surfing. I don't think that I'm a particularly good journalist or writer, but like, I think that, or, and I'm certainly not good at being on TV, you know, but, uh, the, yeah. but the time when I was surfing and I was not good, I f- could find little bits of improvement that happened physically, you know? Um, and that was important to me was that like, sometimes it would be easier at, if I went, Every day and big, relatively big surf for me, I would find that it was easier to get out past the break in at Ocean Beach in mm. San Francisco. You know, um, that I could stay out longer, that I would be less afraid of like waves welling up behind me. Um, and that type of sort of constant progress that you feel physically is very hard to find in media. I think mm. uh, it doesn't sound like you found it because you're like shitting on yourself right now you just said you're not a good writer you're not no i didn't say i I don't think i'm particularly good in any of these things but like i uh but i don't because uh you know being good is really hard you know so i think it's kind of hard to find that sort of like a thing where you feel very where you can say all right every day i'm improving a little bit yeah i'm getting a little bit better um and you know um i can note changes uh it's harder in writing um i think that probably over the course of the past six years that sentence to sentence i've become a worse writer you know and i think what i've become much better at is like sort of being 
uh, type of person who can write for magazines, but I think that, or, or for like newspapers or do pieces for, like I've become a better journalist, but mm. I think since a sentence, I've become a worse writer. Yeah. And I think that's inevitable. I think it happens probably to a lot of people because, you know, you write in a style that is the style of the publication you're writing mm. for and that you start to sort of anticipate how you're going to write things, knowing what pushback there's going to be. And it's a, it's a, I think for me, it's probably a little bit more glaring because I used to be a fiction writer and it was always just about me, you know? Mm. Um, but I don't think that the process is a bad process. I think it's probably a necessary and good process, especially if you want to communicate with a lot of people, you know? But, uh, but I do think that like my sentences interest me less than it they used to five years ago. Considering all that, I guess the last question I'm going to ask and then we can get out of here is, um, are you a cynical person? <laughs> um, I don't know what that means. I mean, like, do I think... I knew you would respond to do that, most, that. Do I think that most things will fail? Is that cynical? Uh, yeah, probably. I don't know. Most things fail, but... And it's good to be realistic about it. Um, and I certainly have failed quite a bit, you know? Like I said, my entire thir- 20s was spent getting rejection letters uh not even in like a glamorous way just in like a way that was mm. where I, like uh that was just sort of non-stop and pretty terrible um but i don't know i don't think that cynicism really i don't think that you can sort of be a journalist while being actually cynical uh I think that journalists come across as being horribly cynical and have a way of talking to one another that seems monstrous, I think, to a lot of people. But I don't think that you can go about the process of, say, like spending six, nine months trying to find out the truth about something or trying to find out, talk to people or make phone calls or getting on a driving out somewhere to like report a story without a great amount of belief, you know, like, I mean, it's like a thankless, terrible thing. And, and our economy right now is one that's not financially paid very much, you know? And so I don't think that, I think I'm probably about as cynical or on the exterior, maybe I'm more of a cynical asshole than your typical journalist. But I think that like, that all of us have like a great amount of belief in things or else we wouldn't do it. Mm. I just mentioned that, or I think about that only because like, I look at you and um, I just go over things like this. Go over, let's just do like a sort of fact check. It's like there's Grantland, there's the Times Magazine, there's a New Yorker, you've written a book, you have this HBO show, you're married, you live in a great city. We're out here on like this deck that's like impossibly, <laughs> stupidly, wonderfully it's beautiful. A, it is a nice deck, yes. And I guess I just, uh, I want you to be happy, Jay. <laughs> oh, thanks, Sam. <laughs> uh, I am. I just, you know. I, I know we just met, but I it's have a like, child coming uh, in a f- that's or hopefully in a few. I don't want to jinx it, but like, you know. And I, I don't know. I, I think that it's it's not like a unhappiness thing. It's just really just a, it's a, a question of, well, I guess, you know. So the places that you listed, I will say that I've never been like a big big wheel at any of them you know but i have worked at a lot of interesting places um and i would say that if i think about things objectively that i've done 
better than I thought I would do when I was 28. Um, and I think it just goes back to what you were talking, but I also feel like it's delusional for me to think that I'm like some sort of big deal. If we walk into this office behind us right now and everybody works in media, there isn't a single person I bet who's read anything I've written, you know? So I, I think that it's good to remind, to remind yourself of that, you know, like inside media worlds, it's easy to sort of delude yourself into believing that you're, uh, you know, that everybody's reading your writing and that you're, you've made it, but I don't know, like it's, it's not, certainly not true you know i think that says more about vice than it does about i don't know i don't think that's true i think that if you walked into like any media place with young people in new york city i think that you know like their exposure is low i mean i don't you know there are a lot of things that i don't read either so Mm. uh i don't think that sort of having been at these pedigree places many of them for only six months or something like that reflects any sort of actual success you know and i don't but it's fine like you know i just feel like there's still opportunity to do better pieces and get better but you know it's it's it takes a lot of time and and uh belief in oneself and like i don't you know like i think as i grow older those things are the things that are that are i'm finding harder to summon up well um i still got i have belief in you so okay thanks th- th- man there's that thanks. and um congrats on <laughs> hey thanks a kid yeah yeah yeah. no i'm excited and um, uh thanks for doing the show hey thanks man this was fun well there it is no kind publicist to thank this week although shout out to the folks at vice for letting us squat outside and record this episode of the show you can read Jay's column in the Times Magazine every month. We'll link to that in the show notes. And if you're an HBO subscriber, you can catch him on your television at Vice News. Or, more frequently, on Twitter at Jay Caspian King. Finally, a big thanks to Jay for taking the time to talk. People. If you enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, you may enjoy past conversations with former Grant Lander, Wesley Morris, Sherman Alexi, Matt Zollersheis, and Eric Andre. In case this is your first time listening, Talk Easy is primarily a listener-supported program. And the best way you could help support the show right now is by reviewing it on iTunes or just sharing it with someone you know. The more we get the word out, the longer we can continue putting out weekly shows for you all. The kind responses we've received on social media thus far have been really... Uh, really wonderful to read so if you have a couple free minutes this week any support you could offer us would be much appreciated if you're not currently doing so already you can subscribe to the program on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcasting app if you want to drop us a line about anything feel free to email the show at talkeasypod at gmail.com we're also on twitter facebook and instagram at talkeasypod as well as our website www.talkeasypod.com Our music this week and every week is by Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Social media by Maria Mayella. The show is produced and edited by Corey Atad. I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week.
Medal of Honor podcast is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. It's a special thing to be a member of Navy Federal because they're a member-owned, not-for-profit credit union that invests in their members with amazing rates and low fees. That's why members earn and save more every year. If you are active duty, a veteran, or have a family member who is a veteran or service member, you're eligible for membership. Become a Navy Federal member today. Navy Federal Credit Union. Members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com.